Roll sound, Scotty. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! It's the Stinking Paws podcast. Hi, Scott here. Now, if you follow the Twitter feed or you're a member of the Facebook group, you may be aware of this week's guest. Late last year, earlier this year, I was invited onto the excellent Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast to chat about the two John Lennon imagined documentaries. Now, the host of that show agreed to appear on Real Britannia a couple of weeks back where we chatted about the Richard Lester movie, How I Won the War, mainly because it featured John Lennon. Well, like a fool, he's agreed to appear here on the Stinking Paws to chat about a movie that's got absolutely nothing to do with John Lennon. It's Anthony. Good afternoon, mate. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm very well. We were just talking off air about week two of lockdown. and mm. Well, one benefit of it is, is creating some great podcasting opportunities. Podcasting seems to be going on from strength to strength in this uh, troubled time, mate. I mean, you're a busy man with your podcast, aren't you? They talk about the similarity being between crisis and opportunity, don't they? But I, I don't want to, because I'm not. Be- I don't. I don't feel guilty because I'm not benefiting financially from this. I feel like it is a service, you know. And it's. I've actually made a point on my couple of shows that I've put out recently not to actually talk about this. I put a couple. Of, I put a couple of things about it in the outro, but I wanted to sort of say, well, my podcasts are like a nice diversion, you know, yeah. something separate. And who knows? Who knows when this is going to go out as well? It's the other thing. That's true. Like, like yeah. me, you stockpile. So, oh blimey, this is probably about six, eight weeks away before the, this actually sees the light of day. And, and I was talking, I think it was on a previous episode with Paul, which at this point hasn't seen the light of day itself. Mm. That when we go back or people discover this podcast in years to come, it's really going to sort of carbon date when all this was taking place because that's the general conversation amongst all the podcasters at the moment oh yeah mm. yeah we were talking about how events become news stories almost instantly and then they become almost two separate things an event and a news story yeah and so the news just has to keep rolling and it's interesting but you know if you take that take that further about this weird thing about recording podcasts and then they're there forever mm. you know who knows could be a hundred years exactly. I also, someone's discovered us in 2120 can you imagine it can you imagine it It'd be, this would yeah. be the turn to podcast for your film history god help us um, <laughs> I read somewhere this is even going back a couple of years ago that of all the podcasts that were ever created or ever made Mm. 75% of them don't exist anymore. They're out there still, you know, in something one form or another, but they're not going anymore. 75% plus have fallen by the wayside. 
Oh, as in the shows? The shows themselves, oh, yeah. Right, not the episodes. So they keep the episodes on there, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, the people have either gone on to different things or lost heart with it or done something completely different mm-hmm. or tried it. Yeah, um, yeah so I think it was 75% plus just, just aren't going anymore. But since I started podcasting, which was seven, eight years ago nearly now, eight years in the summer, yeah, um, a lot more people have taken it up. I mean, you're fairly new to the game, a couple of years down the line. And mm. um, we will give you the opportunity to give the listeners all your links to your shows towards the end of the episode today. Okay. But for the moment, could you just let, because this is your first time on Stinking Paws, isn't it? You've been on Real Britannia mm. with us. Could you just let everyone know about your podcast, some of the amazing guests that you've had, what it's all about and your love for John Lennon, mate? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've had a love for John Lennon and a fascination with him and the Beatles. Uh, for 30 years, I'd say. And then 14 months ago, or about a year and a half ago, I started getting it together. My technophobe uh, tendencies came out a little bit. I had a bit of trouble getting started. but um, So, yeah, Scott's been on it. But, yeah, I've had um, some John Lennon's old bandmates. I had a guy, Dan Richter, who was in 2001, which is one of my favorite films, mm-hmm. and was John Lennon's personal assistant. So that was quite yeah. amazing. And, you know, it's just... It, it's a very interesting exercise in that you can contact people who are fairly famous, but perhaps to non-Beatles people, they're not that famous. So like yeah. the quarry men and you can reach out to them. And a lot of them are getting on in years, obviously. And mm. I think they're quite happy to have someone interested in them. And I think my natural passion, I don't need to pretend to be passionate about it. I think it comes out. It's a sort of calm passion. Someone described my voice. Yeah, it's not frenetic at all, mate. Yeah. And and yeah. particularly not just the quarry men, but for Beatles fans like myself that over the years have sort of digested every sort of biography and book mm. and every single bit of written word. You've had some great authors on there that to, to the average everyday listener is like, well, okay, it's an author. Mm. But, you know, someone like Mark Lewis or someone like that that writes the definitive part of the Beatles history are like, Wow, that's that's a coup to have people of of that magnitude of, you know, authorship that you get some of some great names on there. But the, the, the Quarry Men was was the crowning glory for me, mate. I, I was so mm. chuffed when you, uh, you, you know, you managed to get two, and they're still mm. alive as well, which is fantastic. Well, one of them one of them lives in Uxbridge, actually, just sort of outskirts of London. And mm. um, are we recording this at the beginning of April? Yeah, two weeks ago, middle of March. Mm-hmm. You and I actually met in the flesh. We did. In London. And I was supposed to meet Rod Davis, who I'd previously interviewed, just to have a chat and, uh, you know, whatever. And uh, we couldn't because of, for obvious reasons. Yeah. So I'm going to be meeting him at some point in London in the future. So that'd be fun. That'd be good. Get, maybe get the guitars out, a yeah, few renditions the- of Maggie May. And, <laughs> you know. Me and you can make arrangements to meet afterwards, mate, as well. That'd yeah, be good, good news. If, once all this horrible business is over movies now Mm. i know a little bit about your movie watching taste but not a great deal we've been sort of chatting over the past six months or so i'd say um and on the real britannia podcast you selected a cracking stanley baker heist movie from the 60s called a prize of arms Mm. i know you've got quite an eclectic taste when it comes to movies and it sort of spans across all the years all the genres have you got any particular favourite sort of actors, actresses, genres, directors at all? Is there anything you gravitate towards? Are you pretty open-minded when it comes to your, your movie watching? 
yeah there's a few things that i particularly like i mean you and i have talked about this thing they call the easy riders to raging bulls Mm, period yes just sort of 69 68 perhaps well probably from bonnie and clyde actually 67 Mm. to raging bull was one of the last ones yeah and it was this period where you had a lot of guys coming out of film school um you know spielberg scorsese de palma coppola etc and they'd learned all these sort of techniques from Russian and German expressionist films going back to the silent era. You also had uh, studio executives uh, doing too much cocaine and uh, <laughs> letting their judgment and their control slip a little bit. So there's a bit of the swing in the 60s in there. Yeah. And it was a sort of uh, perfect storm of all these things uh, to create this just amazing period. But, I mean, that whole period in the world, you know, with Vietnam and everything was fascinating to me. Obviously the Beatles overlapped there. Yeah. Um, I was also brought up, well, a friend of mine's mother had an amazing collection of old black and white films and on old, uh, copied VHS tapes. Mm. We worked our way through, through lots and lots of Hitchcock wow. sort of at 13, 14, pretty young for that really. Mm. Um, my favorite actors, well, ties in quite nicely with what we're talking about today. De Niro is a big favorite. Marlon Brando is the godfather in every way for me. <laughs> the guy is, is amazing. And I keep mentioning him on my John Lennon podcast. He yeah. seems to come up because John Lennon and Marlon Brando seem to be the two most fascinating characters to me. My favorite film, my favorite film, I'm not joking, uh, for a long time was, in fact, Raging Bull. Okay. Uh, our yeah. topic for today, yeah. yeah. Um, I kind of, over the last two or three years, I've sort of rewatched my top 30 films, I'd say. Hmm. And there's lots of kind of ones from the 70s that aren't quite so high profile, like Sleuth and, yeah. um, well, the Taking a Pell in 1, 2, 3, because yeah. Robert Shaw is another big mm. uh, favourite in terms of actors. And um, I kind of come up with a top three. So it's, so it's Raging Bull, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Apocalypse Now, which... Those last two are not very original choices, I understand. But uh, And I'd say that of those three films, there's one Kubrick, uh, one Scorsese, and one Coppola. I'm yeah. kind of happy with that, because I'd probably <laughs> say they're my three favorite filmmakers. So, yeah. I've lost touch the last 10 years or so. I really have lost touch badly with mm. modern films, because I kind of spend a lot of time on YouTube finding obscure ones that are free to view, you know, freeloading some old black and white films from YouTube, basically. Some crackers doing that. Like <laughs> you really find some, some hidden gems in there. Oh, you really can. Yeah. And the British, uh, again, discovering your podcast, uh, I think it's about a year ago, Real Britannia. Mm. I've gone back to some of those British ones and we have Talking Pictures TV. Plug, plug. <laughs> <laughs> is there another podcast out there, by the way? <laughs> there is, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But we have that on TV and some amazing stuff comes up. So kind of gone backwards, to be honest. Oh, it's great, though. The, the, the thing I've learned doing Real Britannia is that I'd forgotten how much those British movies were part of my childhood and part of my growing up. Yeah. And an important part as well, you know, family time, watching those sort of movies and growing up with your family, watching them together. And, and with Stinking Paws, I mean, we've got a broader canvas to paint on here because, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's world cinema, it's Hollywood. It is British as well. You know, we do British movies on Stinking Paws as well. Mm. And thankfully, having guests like yourself on, it, it just gives us certain movies that I might not have thought about doing. 
You know, mm. people's tastes are all different. There was a period in the early days of Stinking Paws when Charlie was my co-host for a couple of years, and the amount of that that period that you're talking about, that Easy Riders Raging Bull period that we did, mm. and we found things like the conversation and clues. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, and we, it was a running joke for a while that we'd always keep pushing the conversation and clue to people that hadn't seen them. Mm. Uh, we did Easy Rider. We haven't done Bonnie and Clyde, so perhaps that's another one you and I can do at some point because mm. there's still a few in that period that I'd like to have a little look at. Tulane Blacktop, some of those sort of like Warren Oates and all those sort of guys, you know. Um, we'll come back to that later, but today's mm. movie... It's it's 1980. It's it's raging bull, Scorsese. Mm. Now, one thing that I've learned over these past few months, getting to know you, going on your shows, is that whenever you appear on a podcast or you host a podcast, your preparation—I can hear them now. I can hear the notes, right, rustling. <laughs> Here you go. It's a bit louder. Yeah. Here you go. <laughs> it's impressive. On my shows, I tend to wing it. Uh, right, right. But I've made an exception in this case. I've jotted down a few things. <laughs> We're not talking major film study essays here, but just a few pointers. But I'm pretty sure that today's review is going to belong entirely to you. <laughs> because you'll see as we go along, I mentioned something to you off air about my relationship with this movie. Mm. It will all become apparent once we get chatting. So, okay. what we're going to do, let's play the trailer. And we'll be back after this. There's no one else around who wants to fight me. They're all afraid. There's done a lot of bad things, Joey. Maybe it's coming back to me.
Raging Bull, released in the USA on the 19th of December 1980, directed, of course, by Martin Scorsese, starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci and Kathy Moriarty. The synopsis, now I've lifted this straight from IMDb, says it all actually, sums it up quite nicely. When Jake LaMotta steps into a boxing ring and obliterates his opponent, he's a prize fighter. But when he treats his family and friends the same way, he's a ticking time bomb, ready to go off at any moment. Though LaMotta wants his family's love, something always seems to come between them. Perhaps it's just his violent bouts of paranoia and jealousy. This kind of rage helped make him a champ, but in real life, he winds up in the ring alone. That's quite nice. That's not a bad little synopsis. It doesn't give away too many details. I mean, it doesn't tell you exactly who Jake LaMotta is. It doesn't tell you anything about Scorsese and De Niro. Yeah. Before I wind you up and let you fly with this, mate, right? <laughs> straight off the bat, this is what I'm going to be sort of pushing towards with you, like just to give you some idea of my background. Okay. I've always struggled with this movie. Um, I first watched it mid-80s. I think Channel 4 might have had the premiere and screened it 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, something like I'm sure it was Channel 4. And it was at this period, I was I was about 14, 15, I was well into my discovery of classic movies and, of course, Raging Bull. I thought, you know, I've got to see this. This is always in critics' top ten lists and stuff like that. Mm. At the time, I thought it was okay. Not really my cup of tea, but I certainly appreciated it. You know, the acting, cinematography. But I didn't think much more of it than that. I just thought, okay, I've seen it. I've ticked it off, me, you know, my list of movies I need to see, my bucket list sort of thing. Mm. And I never went back to it until about 15 years ago. So I'm in my 30s at this point. So we got more adult eyes. And I had a lot more knowledge of Scorsese and his work. I'd seen a lot more of his movies by now. So we're talking about 15 years ago. And I watched it again. This is the second time. And in my mind, yes, it's, you know, it's probably a cinematic masterpiece. And yes, there's no doubt De Niro can act. But for me, I couldn't see what the fuss was about. Right, mm. bear with me. I'm not slagging this off at this point. Well, I'm not slagging it off at all. I won't be slagging this film off at all. I couldn't see what the fuss was about. So it's my second watch as a 30 year old now. Regular listeners will know that I do struggle with certain Scorsese films. We reviewed Mean Streets, Gangs of New York previously on the show. Mm. I'm in no rush to rewatch them. I've, I've watched Goodfellas twice, I think. Probably haven't seen it for 20 years. I've seen Cape Fear a couple of times. Wolf of Wall Street, I loved it, but I've only watched it the once when it first came out. And to be honest, out of all of Scorsese's back catalogue, Casino is probably my favourite, but that's probably down more to my undying love for Sharon Stone than anything else. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, taxi Driver, like Raging Bull, I struggle with. And I've said this quite a few times on the show. I try really hard with Taxi Driver because I know or I believe that it's a good movie. But in the four four times I've watched it, I come away thinking I've missed something here. Why am I not seeing what other people are seeing? Mm. So when we reviewed it on the show, me and Charlie, ooh, about five years ago, mm. Charlie and I were discussing it and Charlie pointed out certain things that I'd missed. And my appreciation for it suddenly went up. I'm like, ah, I get it, sort of. I haven't seen it since. And when I do get round to seeing it again, since I've had that conversation with Charlie, I'm hoping that it's finally going to click with me, what the mm. appeal is. You know, I, I can appreciate it's a good-looking movie. I can appreciate the acting. 
but I'm not raving about it. And this is what I'm like with Raging Bull. I'm hoping that chatting with you today is going to push a couple of buttons in my brain mm. and sort of give me the appreciation of the movie that I think it deserves. Or am I wrong? Is it an overblown, overall, overrated movie, which I'm, you're, you're going to argue against, and I'm not saying it is. You know, I just need to get mm. this straight in my head. I think I need you to talk me through it, mate. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I've come here with no agenda to actively convince you about anything. Because no. No, one, no one needs to or has to like anything they don't want to. I mean, it's interesting. I, I find films, movies are a very personal thing. And a, a lot of the time, I'm, I'm probably going to say this every time we do a film podcast together, mm. that a lot of it is contextual. Mm-hmm. Um, and the couple of things that sort of leapt out while you were talking. Mm. I didn't realise it was a Christmas film, by the way. I was thinking an alternative title could have been a, a heartwarming Christmas story of brutality <laughs> inside and outside the ring. You know? it's uh, <laughs> It was released at Christmas time as well in the, in, in the States. Yeah, 19th That's what I was saying. I didn't, until you said that, I didn't, I'd yeah. never, never known that. But it's probably um, to time with the Oscar season, isn't it? It's that period of the, the year when the big movies tend to get released. So, mm. Just a very quick John Lennon tangent. Um, his killer was actually in New York and watched uh, Ordinary People, which was, uh, we'll get to the Oscars later, won't we? But there Ordinary is, People yeah. swept, swept the Oscars that year. Raging Bull didn't get too much. I mean, it got a fair few nominations. There is a bigger but, connection with um, John Hinckley and this year's Oscars ceremony as well. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, we'll come so to that. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second. Yeah, we will. Yeah, mm. yeah. So the killer would have seen the the trailer for this. Oh, I, yeah. I guess I think ordinary people must have come out at the end of that year as well. But, yeah, it would um, have been. Yeah, it's it's sort of the Oscar season is from you know the March through to the January. I think it is. These are the ones mm. that they can um, qualify to be considered. Mm. So. Well, the, the two things I wanted to say is that. There's a lot of films which are kind of pushed as being the best. Mm. And I've grown to like Citizen Kane, but rather like this film, the point I'm going to come on to is I had enough interest that I bought the DVD. And when I buy DVDs, I have to watch all the extras, mm-hmm. commentaries and everything. Yeah. And I watched this commentary of Citizen Kane. And when, when you got someone, particularly someone whose voice you like, it was a film analyst with a really calm voice, yeah. just pointing out everything that's in that film. That's really where the turning point might come. The other thing is that I've had a fascination with boxing since I was a child. And, you know, when you're a child and you get into things, those things can stay with you for your whole life, you know? Mm, yeah. I think you and I share an obsession with Jaws, don't we? And we do, yeah. We might we might both say that there are deficiencies in, in the film, but it's so kind of married to our lives. Uh, it's, yeah, it's... That, that, it's hard to divorce those two things. You, See how we use married and divorced? Well done. Yeah, You're a professional you. podcaster on the other end of the line here. Well done, sir. <laughs> uh, you know, for example, I watched uh, I watched Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Because uh, I've got to watch this once in my life. And yes. I thought Vivian Lee should have won a golden raspberry, not an Oscar. <laughs> it's so wooden. I mean, I just did not care. <laughs> One iota about any of those characters. I'm sorry, gone with the wind. It's horses for courses, isn't it? That's what I mean. We, yeah. we, as as film fans, and and to a certain degree, film critics almost. I never class myself as a film critic. You know, it's it's just two two mates having a chat about a movie. This is what this yeah. podcast is always <laughs> about. Um, we're not going to like what everybody else likes, and I love the fact that we've got this opportunity to sort of express what we get about the movie, what we get out of it. 
Mm. Um, and I know for a fact that you get a lot more out of this movie than I do, which I think is going to make a great conversation over the next sort of 45 minutes or so. Mm. That you're going to explain your love for Raging Bull to me and I'm going to try and fathom out why it is so highly regarded and why I don't get that in, in my brain. That's that's how I think this conversation's going to go. Yeah. Um, but I'm not saying it's a bad film. I'm not saying I didn't like the film. Mm. I'm just trying to judge its popularity and, and why it's so highly revered. Um, and you're going to convince me. I'm sure you are. Okay. <laughs> oh, just the, sorry, the thing I didn't finish about boxing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I've, um, and when I was young, you know, my dad was a Muhammad Ali fan and, mm. uh, he showed me a couple of his fights and obviously some of his interviews. And, um, and I mean, my, my, my background is nothing like Jake LaMotta's <laughs> not at all, mm-hmm. but, uh, I did a little bit of boxing. I went to a club when I was a teenager. Yeah. There's something so primal and so honest about boxing, which is a very strange comment considering how much the mob were involved in boxing, <laughs> but the honesty comes when everyone gets out of the ring and it's just two guys and a referee. And the two yeah. guys, if you notice, at the end of most fights, they embrace each other, even if they've been slagging each other off in the yes. build-up. Because yeah. they both realize what an extraordinary thing it is mm. to become a professional boxer and to do that for a living. Yeah. Because, I mean, I won't go into it now, but when you really study it, the actual, what the, the punishment they're receiving in the ring in a championship fight, and just how, you know, Martin Scorsese suddenly realized that he didn't have to be a boxing fan. The ring is the, is the metaphor you know, it's the cages we're in. It's the traps that we set for ourselves and the traps that society sets for us. You know, yeah. that's what the ring means. And yeah. Yeah. Interesting you say about at the end of a fight that fighters will tend to embrace. And it's just a release, isn't it? That this whole months of preparation is finally over and they've beaten the living crap out of each other for the last 12 yeah. rounds. There's one point in this movie, and it's, I think it's the fight with Sugar Ray or one of the Sugar Ray Robinson fights where I expected them to go and hug each other. And, and De Niro walks up to the Sugar Ray Robinson guy. Oh, yeah. And he just says to him, I didn't go down. I didn't go you down. You never got me down, yeah. Ray. You never got me down, And that Ray. embrace never happens. You know, he's still, he's Jake LaMotta. This is the thing about this movie. He's such an unlikable character. Mm. Um, I found myself hating De Niro, but in a good way. We've yeah. said this before on the podcast. If you come away from a movie hating a bad guy, a villain in a movie, you know that that actor has done their job correctly and, and you know perfectly well. Because what you get with this is a perfect depiction of a paranoid, almost psychotic lunatic yeah. um, with no redeeming features whatsoever. It might also make you perhaps question your morality because some of these people like, I mean, if you think of, uh, just to give a recent example, Breaking Bad. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I, I love that show, but, but when I started to think of it in a more kind of um, moral way, mm-hmm. it's like you are essentially rooting for this guy. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> yeah. much the reason that people people keep watching, apart from uh, the production values and the acting and all yeah. that. He is the protagonist, whatever the precise meaning of protagonist is, the mm. guy we follow and you know, the 70s is this famous period of kind of anti-heroes, which basically means a very flawed hero. Yes. And, but if you compare with someone like McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cooker's Nest, he's a flawed hero, but he seems to be, in the end, a fairly decent person. You know, a bit of a, 
a bit of a rogue, a bit of a Jack the Lad. But yeah, you I've, can't really compare it with La Mata because we'll get to the book in a second. Yeah. He's actually worse in the book. Well, <laughs> I think that period that we were talking about, that Easy Rider Raging Ball period, is mm. a great example of, like you said, the anti-heroes. And you couldn't root for a villain because the Hayes Code previously would not let the bad guy get away with it, would it? There always had to be yeah. some sort of, um, you, you know, sense of justice. You know, the bad guy was always put in prison at the end or get shot or whatever, you know, the good guys would always win. So we get this wonderful, from the early 60s, where you can actually root for the villain. And like you said, Breaking Bad's a fine example of that. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the beginning. Talk about the book for us then, mate, because it is based sure. on Lamotta's autobiography, I'm assuming. Uh, more or less, yeah. yeah. It was sort of. It was written by, I think it was written by a couple of people, but mm. it was a guy called Pete Savage who was Jake LaMotta's best friend, I guess. And the Joey character in the film, Joe Pesci's character, yeah. is a composite of the real Joey and Pete Savage. Oh, right, so they thought okay. we'll just have one character instead of two. And mm -hmm. it was, Paul Schrader turned it into more of a brothers, two brothers story. Yeah. But um, the book, yeah, the book isn't brilliantly written at all. It's you know, it's not a classic in that sense, but I haven't read it for a while. But the thing I remember, as I just said to you, uh, Jake LaMotta was actually in many ways worse than uh, De Niro portrays him or the film portrays him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the two things that I remember, Jake LaMotta actually killed, or sorry, I should say thought he'd killed a bookmaker mm. from, uh, I think they were from the Bronx, weren't they? Yeah. Mm. And he, what happened was that when Jake LaMotta was 16, his dad gave him an iron bar or a, and said, son, if anyone gives you any trouble, use that. Right. And uh, during one of these documentaries I just I saw last night about Raging Bull, they were saying, can you totally blame Jake LaMotta when you know that story? That, you know, that was, that was his dad's <laughs> uh, you know, advice. fatherly advice. Yeah. <laughs> so Jake LaMotta actually killed, I can't remember how he did it, but he, he thought he'd killed this bookie. Like the guy seemed to be stone dead. So he was carrying that around with him. Hmm. And then it, and then years later, this bookie appears. Oh, right. Yeah, so he hadn't actually committed murder, but he had, ostensibly, he thought he had, in and he carried mind. on with his life. Yeah. And then later on, he actually rapes, uh, I don't know if it's Pete Savage, but one of his best friend's wife or girlfriend. Wow, okay. Yeah, and so, and then you've got lots of mob stuff, so it's kind of faithful to the book, but in fact, Mardik Martin wrote the original uh, draft, and then Paul Schrader who I'm sure you've heard of, he wrote, wrote Taxi, Taxi Driver. Driver, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then actually De Niro and Scorsese went away and they reworked the script as well. So it was a bit of a bit of a committee job there. The um, yeah. th There's a great story at the premiere. The motto mm. was invited along with his wife. Mm. And halfway through, he turns to his wife and he says, was I really that bad? And she turns to him and said, no, you were worse. Yeah. <laughs> so it is true what you're saying. That was one of my notes. Oh, yeah. you have got that. Sorry, mate. I've nicked that one. But, That's all right. <laughs> um, but you, you just touched on the, the sort of the background, the book. It was De Niro was reading the book originally. I think it was during the film in The Taxi Driver. Is that right? And he was trying to convince Scorsese way back in 74, 75 to make the movie even there. Or was it Mean Streets? I can't remember. I read somewhere. It was, it was... Uh, I've heard a couple of things. Mm. I, I think it might be The Godfather Part Two. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Or and then when he was making, I think he made a film called 1900, which I haven't seen. I think he had the book then, but mm. I mean, it's not the kind of book that you would need to pour over for weeks. It's all pretty simple, you know. It's, yeah. So he probably read it quickly, and yeah, essentially he was 
he wanted Scorsese to do it, but Scorsese wasn't a boxing fan and he couldn't find any connection to it. And this and, is obviously pre-Rocky as well then, isn't it? So the germ of the yeah. idea was there before Stallone had the success. Um, yeah, there'd been quite a few boxing films, but there's one called The Setup, actually, with Robert Ryan, which yes. I'd quite like to see again. Mm. Hoping that I'm hoping that'll appear on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I may um, have a copy here you can borrow, mate, I'm sure. Oh, okay, I think yeah. I may have it. I'll, I'll double-check for you. Yeah, and there was... There was one with Paul Newman and uh, somebody up there likes me. Yeah, it's a great film. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. And then, um, so I think boxing has always been a popular topic. Oh, yeah. I mean, go right back to the original version of The Champ. You know, that was uh, mm. <laughs> Wallace Beery or wherever it was back then. Um, mm. Certainly had a bit of a resurgence post 75, post Rocky, didn't it? That's the thing. And um, wasn't mm. Chartoff and Winkler the producers of this? I think they were the producers of Rocky as well. Yeah, they were. And in fact, one of the reasons this got made, because the studios, quite rightly, I would, I would say, were sceptical about this material. Yeah. Um, the other thing which kind of does annoy me a little bit about audiences, apparently, if you make a film in black and white, I don't, I don't know if it's exa- the same thing now. Perhaps audiences are more sophisticated. But mm. in the 80s, for example, when you made it, when you decide to make a film black and white, they say you, you've already cut you've cut the potential gate receipts yes. by 50%. Yeah. And it's the same with subtitles, and it kind of, I don't know, it's a bit of a bee in my bonnet. I mean, why why is it such an imposition to read subtitles during a film? Yeah, some people just don't get on with it, do they? That's the thing. It's, it's yeah. quite interesting. Like they're, they're three three or four great sort of major movies around this period that were filmed in black and white. You know, the same year we got The Elephant Man. Oh, yeah. Also, you got, you know, David Lynch was doing a razor head. You had the last picture show was in black and white, wasn't it? I think Paper Moon yeah. was in black and white. Obviously, Woody Allen film, Stardust well, Memories came yeah, out this year. that was black. Great Sharon Stone again, her first um, first appearance. And, oh, um, <laughs> well, Chartoff, uh, Chartoff and Winkler actually, sorry, I didn't finish my point. Mm. I'm rambling today, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Chartoff and Winkler actually used the fact... Uh, used the Rocky thing to get Raging Bull made because the studios said uh, they wanted to make Rocky 2. Chartoff and Winkler were thinking that already, but they pretended they weren't sort of fussed about making it, and they used the leverage of Rocky 2 to get Raging Bull made. So there is a connection other than boxing between those films. Going Hmm. back to black and white, I read somewhere, I mean, you've done a lot more research on this than I have. About this time... Uh, Scorsese was great friends with Michael Powell, the legend yeah. Michael Powell, Powell and Pressburger, mm. who eventually married Thelma Shoemaker, didn't he? He, was, he, he married um, the editor. He was married Absolutely. to him right up to his death. And this may be a bit of an urban myth, I'm not too sure, but the reason it was filmed in black and white was not through any artistic sort of reasoning by Scorsese himself. When they were filming the fight scenes, Powell pointed out that the colour of the boxing gloves they were using were the wrong colour. Yeah. Back in the 40s, there was only two types. I think they were black or oxblood, I think they were called. And and Scorsese had chosen some lighter boxing colour or something. I can't remember what it was. And rather than refilm, he, he took the decision to film in black and white. But... Um, I can't imagine that being the case. I can't imagine that being the reasoning why this movie is filmed in, in black and white at all. Um, well, one of the documentaries, they did mention that. Oh, right, okay. I, th- I think that wasn't the only reason, but I think I think 
maybe they they'd suspected there was something wrong with it anyway like it was all a bit too bright perhaps there was yeah but wasn't there also that scorsese was so influenced by the bloody sponge at a boxing match that he'd seen yeah that was the thing they were yeah they, he went to a boxing match uh twice and the first one he sat in uh, what they call america the bleachers yes you know the the very very high seats where you mm. can't really see anything and then they went again to madison square garden and lamotta took them yeah and presumably lamotta was talking him through everything so i think there was lamotta de niro and scorsese went to went ringside which mm. would have been uh, pretty interesting yeah there were a couple of things the the, the blood on the blood on the rope that was it dripping off the rope that was it yeah that was it what was the other thing and it was the bloody sponge on his back that's it yeah he was sponging down his back and in it it looked like a mixture of sort of blood and water that was running down it. Mm. But I think, I think Scorsese was definitely would have grown up at film school and everything, watching a lot of black and white. So I think he was very um, taken with that idea. And I think it was just the fact that Michael Powell had, had perhaps identified what was wrong with it. Yeah. yeah that, it, that the gloves were too bright, but maybe the whole film would have been too bright in color, you know, yeah. like a, so, so it kind of takes its place as a sort of anti-Rocky, even though the beginning of the original Rocky was very gritty mm-hmm. and was great, but the sequels obviously became more and more glitzy and oh, more God, 80s yeah. as they enter the 80s. So, yeah, the, the gloves would have been, I mean, I'm actually a bit colorblind, but it's somewhere between red and brown. Mm, ox blood, sort of, I think, or something that is the official color. I can't remember. That's a, but that's A sort of dull, much duller red, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So where's Scorsese at this point? You know, he's he's already filmed Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Last Waltz, wasn't it? I think had already been filmed at this point. Yeah. Um, and it's before King of Comedy, Last Temptation of Christ, Goodfellas, and all those ones that we know. That's right. Um, no doubt, you know, some amazing movies in his CV. I mean, Scorsese in general, for yourself, mm. I, I'm going to assume you're a fan. Yeah, it's a big favourite. Yeah. yeah. Are there any turkeys amongst that lot that you're like, oh, that's a bad movie, Marty. I'm not, you know, not a big fan of that one. Um, I don't, I think, uh, I haven't really followed him recently. Mm. Um, I've heard there's a couple of films that haven't done so well recently. But Silence not, was one, wasn't it, I think, a couple of years back? Yeah, I've really badly lost touch, actually. Mm. I'm very good on film up to about 2008, and then yeah. it's just completely fallen away. But... Um, no, I, I, I mean, New York, New York, I wasn't mad on because I'm mm. not mad on musicals. Yeah. And, I mean, De Niro still did a pretty good job of being a musician mm. in that film. Um, there's not really, I mean, he had Mean Streets, uh, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, King of Comedy, I love, and then he got into Goodfellas. Yeah. I prefer Goodfellas to Casino myself. but Most could, people do. I think I'm the exception yeah. to the rule. I think maybe a lot of it, Goodfellas kind of came first. and mm. Yeah. Um, the Last Temptation of Christ, of Christ is a mm-hmm. great film. Yeah. No, there's not really... I mean, I like that film After Hours. Have you seen that? Not since it came out. Yeah, but yeah. the comedy, isn't it? It's his really only attempt at broad comedy. Am I right there? I don't think there's any... Yeah, still real... black comedy. I mean, mm. not, Scorsese films are never not going to be dark in some way, <laughs> but uh, it's got Griffin Dunn, who was in American Wealth in London. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Scorsese, you know... He, to my mind, he's, he's what I class as an old school director. Mm. You know, he's, he's a man with a vast knowledge, a deep respect for the medium and for mm. the history of filmmaking. 
And you can see why he became friends with Michael Powell or Michael Powell became friends with him mm. because they're two like-minded souls. You know, there's this this venerable, you know, titan of British cinema, you know, influencing the new wave. And, and yeah, you can just see how they, they got to be friends and I, I, the great respect I can imagine that Martin Scorsese had for Michael Powell. And Michael mm. Powell thinking, you know what, there are some great filmmakers out there if... You know, you point them in the right direction. So, yeah, fascinating sort of um, association that those two had. Yeah. I think the other thing with Scorsese, I mean, it's clear what comes out is passion, you know. It really, he doesn't he doesn't make a film unless he's got a connection to it, you know. I mean, he's, he's actually very good friends with Steven Spielberg. And Spielberg's career trajectory has been interesting because he's, his... His sort of more hard-hitting films, obviously starting with Schindler's List. Mm. I think films like Munich. And yeah. those, um, he, he's really, he's got more edgy, but there's always, I'm not the biggest Tom Hanks fan in the world. I respect him as an actor, but I think Spielberg and Hanks together, you're going to get that rather wholesome, what I would say slightly sanitised view of the world. Is it a bit Although, Capra and Jimmy Stewart? Uh as sort of updated, more hard-hitting than mm. that, because obviously you can do more nowadays. Yeah. You know, but, um, but yeah, they're, they're Spielberg and Scorsese are, are very good friends, I think, still to this day. But Scorsese's got that edge. And, I mean, the reason he started doing Raging Bull was that, in fact, in um, 1978, he was hospitalised. I think yeah. he had a marriage breakup and he was hospitalised. He'd been doing... Loads and loads of cocaine and probably all sorts of other things. Mm -hmm. And he had some kind of epiphany. He was in hospital for a couple of weeks. And he suddenly, I think through, I'm sure De Niro came to visit him and probably said, well, you know, what do you think about that Raging Bull thing, you know, <laughs> in your weakened state? You know? Yeah, convinced And he had him. some sort of epiphany and he, he, he saw a bit of that Lamotta character in him and that was essential. So, I mean combination i think know. i read a quote somewhere he said that he actually saved his life didn't it? he would have been dead if it wasn't yeah. for de niro convincing him to make this movie i don't I think, think so. scorsese has ever taken the easy buck i don't think he's ever made a movie it's like you said they've always got a passion behind them and he's got some of the deep interest in every subject that he does mm. i don't think he's ever taken a movie just for the sake of the money Looking down the list on IMDb, they're all high-quality Hollywood productions. There's nothing there that suggests that, you know, he's, he's just done a quickie quota sort of thing to, to, to earn a few quid. Yeah. And, I mean, he'd done enough by, by Goodfellas or Casino that everything he does now is just adding to the legacy. It's kind of like Bob Dylan. I mean, I don't know <laughs> how much of a Dylan fan you are, but just, just purely the albums he made in the 60s, if he disappeared or you know or not survived that he still would have had enough you know same lennon mccartney i'm sure loads of other people only last what? week dylan released mm. a 16 minute single yeah i did i i appeared on a <laughs> i appeared on a on a music podcast that we talked about that yeah about jfk <laughs> there yeah. you go yeah amazing <laughs> still cracking right um let's talk about the we're not going to go deep into the plot because we, we tend not to overanalyze sort of like scene by scene on the stinking pause, but you told yeah. me before 
we, we actually turned the mics on that you particularly wanted to talk about the fight scenes. And I think we need to. We, we need to talk yeah. about the fight scenes in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll get a little bit technical, but not, not too much. Go on. Yeah. Um, yeah, as regards the plot, I mean, he's a middleweight boxer. Um, I guess if people have seen the film and, and are listening to us now and perhaps will go and revisit it, mm. uh, Jake LaMotta is a fairly well-known boxer, but without Raging Bull, I don't think he would have been so well-known because yeah. essentially at that time, the best middleweights were him and Sugar Ray Robinson. Mm -hmm. And Sugar Ray Robinson is actually rated pound for pound the best boxer ever by a, a lot of people, just yeah. ahead of Muhammad Ali, probably. Yeah. Um, so uh, LaMotta and Robinson fought, I think, six times, and you see three or four of those in the film. Really, Lamotta was frustrated by the fact that he wouldn't really play ball with a mob, and yeah. he got his title shot. It's all very political, you know. Him and Robinson were the best fighters. They kept fighting each other because no one else wanted to fight them, basically, because <laughs> they were true. too, too dangerous. Yeah. Um, so the fight scenes, yeah. I mean, they shot them over ten weeks, and I mean, it's the amount of work and the amount of intensity that that must have taken. I can't even imagine because uh, with most boxing films for example rocky films mm. it's the cameraman is outside the ring um obviously yeah yeah, yeah as cameras if it's a, going as if it's a tv ring. broadcast sort of thing isn't it yeah yeah exactly and um it's all often done with multiple cameras you know i don't know seven or eight cameras perhaps i'm not sure mm. yeah scorsese said right we're going to do this the scorsese way which is we're going to kill ourselves for 10 weeks basically <laughs> <laughs> you know um so he shot inside the ring, which is just amazingly making it just amazingly more difficult. Mm -hmm. I don't. I think they probably had. I'm surely they wouldn't have been crazy enough to have one camera. I don't know. I didn't check that, but probably maximum two or three different cameras running. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's just so much. It's 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 really hard to condense this, but <laughs> there's would, too much to say, isn't there? Because it uh, is just a visual treat those three-minute boxing sequences, not even yeah. that in some cases. I, I could point out a couple of things, actually. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things is, uh, if you notice the cameras, you hear this constant shutter noise. Yeah. Yeah, that was actually done, there's actually five or six different sounds there, mm -hmm. and the shutter of the camera is supposed to be something that's sort of impinging on his life, as it does with a lot of famous people, essentially. Mm -hmm. But it's just this relentless, very, very loud shutter sound. Yeah. And then I think the main thing that perhaps people can take from this is that uh, the fights were actually designed almost like a, a dance. And they actually, the, the camera angles and the way you view the ring and the fight, they're actually all done quite differently. And they reflect Jake LaMotta's mood and how his life is going. I've so noticed that, sorry to interrupt, mate. I noticed oh, that particularly in the Robinson fight where he came back after the war. It's very stylized, isn't it? Because there's, you know, there's there's points where he just stands back and he's just staring, and then the camera reverses angle and, and shows Robinson heading towards him. It's almost in slow motion. Absolutely. And it is his perception of the fight, isn't it? And yeah, I noticed that particularly on that one. Yeah, sorry, yeah. mate. Yeah. No, that's all right. Well, there's one where his life's going really well and he has a really good win, and you'll notice the ring is very wide mm. and it's a lot brighter. 
But then there's uh, there's one fight with Robinson. It's probably the one that you're talking to, which talking about, which is actually um, designed as a descent into hell. And they actually had flames. I don't know how they managed this. I think I think that's what Thelma Schoonmaker said in this document. They actually had literally flames coming. You don't see the flames, but you see smoke rising. Right. Yeah. And then it's very it's shot very dark, and there's an element of confusion, even to the point where the camera is actually outside the ring for a second. Mm. But Jake LaMotta, as he's sitting in the corner between rounds, is actually obscured by one of the ropes, so you can't see his face. Oh, right, okay. And it's all supposed to be this sort of descent into hell, mm. and it all sort of is, is a, has a kind of mirage, smoky effect, as if Jake LaMotta doesn't quite know what's going on, like as if it's all surreal, as if it's imaginary almost. So, I mean, and, until that's kind of pointed out, you perhaps wouldn't, well, someone with a, a keen eye like you who's been doing film podcasts for a few years would would notice that. Right. Remember what I said at the beginning. I needed you to point out certain things to help make it click for me. Mm. You've just done it. That's one, right, that's right. one part of it. I'm thinking, okay, there's more to this than just a good-looking fight scene here. Yeah, and I mean, there's right. slow motion. There's the thing that we mentioned earlier of Scorsese um, with the blood. Yeah. Where, where they basically... Uh, putting the sponge on the fighter's back, mm. which is supposed to be his water, but it's a mixture of water and blood yeah. for obvious reasons. Mm. And there's some other amazing things that I didn't I didn't know, that when Lamotta's having his final beating, his final fight with Robinson, which is the absolutely brutal yeah. hammering he takes, the one where, as you said at the end, he says, you never got me down, yes. right? Mm. Yeah, because Lamotta famously never went down and mm. could absorb pretty much any amount of punishment a bit like joe frazier later on oh yeah definitely yeah. yeah and there's stuff like um yeah there's a bit where um this is amazing just before he takes that beating in the round before it one of his corner men is um is sort of gently wiping i think his cuts mm. but it looks like he's giving him the last right <laughs> You're definitely and, seeing more in this than i ever did yeah, well no, i mean that that was pointed out it's not you know it's not exactly that but yeah. it's a very for some reason a bit like Kubrick I can't imagine there's anything in a Scorsese film that's an accident because the guy is mm. oh god so precise so, meti- mm. so meticulous mm. and then um, shall I talk about the sound effects now or, or later there was I was going to just sort of go back to that because you mentioned oh. about like the flash bulbs popping I mm. read somewhere that the sound designer created these specifically from certain objects didn't it? and the punches yeah. Um I I know you you're going to have all the details on this but also because they were so unique and they were created specially for this film he then destroyed all the tapes after the film was released is that correct? Yeah, he did. He right. Frank Warner his name was. Mm. He um yeah, he wanted to start from scratch every time he didn't want to reuse anything. Um can I go through these sound effects? Yeah, good because it's it's quite fascinating how they come about and sort of created them. Yeah, go on mate. What have you got there? Yeah, it's quite amazing. I mean, one of them is is a drum you will hear, a big bass drum, which is distorted. Mm. And there's something, I don't know exactly what it symbolizes, but it's very ominous. Mm. There's lots of sound of animals. So you hear like an elephant braying (laughs) and a horse. (laughs) One of the amazing ones is a horse kind of shuddering, which kind of reflects the shudder you'd have if someone was hitting you extremely hard, you know? Wow, okay. Yeah, and there's sort of howling and screaming noises, but this this guy is a genius for me. He, he slowed. He, they're slowed down. There's some backwards noises, which is very Beatles, of course. I was just about to say, was it, was it George <laughs> Martin in charge of this? No, it wasn't, no. <laughs> yeah, 
there's echo applied to it and he also um one of the sounds is dry ice on glass and uh you can imagine this horrible screeching sound that dry ice would make on on glass and that was sort of used as a backup to the sort of screaming sounds of these animals and it's the flash bulb i've mentioned is supposed to be like some sort of machine gun um wasn't there sort of baseball bats beating the hell out of melons and fruit and things or something as well yeah i mean uh he said it's a cantaloupe just an american name for a a type of melon isn't it yeah type of melon yeah yeah i think i think it's some something whacking a cantaloupe is the boxing is the punching Mm. sounds um, I'm sure. I'm sure there's more, but and there's rumbling and oh, one of the other things is that in that final that Sugar Ray Robinson beating, there's a bit where there's silence. Uh, there's this very very stylized thing where they basically both stop. Yes, you know, and they're obviously. staring at each other. Yeah. Yeah, obviously didn't happen in the fight like no. that. Uh, although you can actually see the original fight with the original commentary on on YouTube, but mm. they have silence and then they 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 put the sound of an animal breathing to signify Lamotta or well, and Sugar Ray's breathing, but maybe there's something about an animal breathing that's just a kind of deeper. You imagine like a large animal. Be a, oh, it's it's the very, whole very primal thing that you hinted at at the beginning as well, isn't it? You know. Yeah, but there's a sort of element of horror about mm. these sort of screeching noises when you when when you know that they're there and you listen. You know, I really would love it. It would be the ultimate tribute if your listeners went back and watched the film, having listened to us talking about it, because and. You know, I think if you have the DVD, if anyone has the DVD with all the extras, it's worth kind of wading through those because there's loads of stuff that I didn't notice. Already. Now, um, I'd sort of put off a rewatch for a a long time, (laughs) you know, a future rewatch. I may go back to this a little bit quicker than I was expecting (laughs) because, like I said, I think you, you are managing to turn the right buttons here for me and push those buttons in my brain, like I said earlier. (laughs) <laughs> in, into what I missed the, the fight scenes I've, I had no problems with the fight scenes and you giving a bit of background as to how they were created have just made them even more fascinating yeah um, I mean but it's the build up to the fight scenes and it's the family stuff as well which we'll, we'll go back on but I know you, you've got a little bit more to say about the, the actual you know the boxing itself yeah I mean all, all I was going to say they, they actually I mean boxing is brutal i mean I, I went to a few fights mm. ringside when i used to go to this club and in the end i didn't really want to go after a while because it, it's it's quite horrible at times the thing i always remembered was not actually i mean when i when i when i did a little bit of boxing the thing i was always scared of was being hit on the nose <laughs> yeah. i can't even imagine like getting your nose broken but the one i actually remember was was actually a guy took a body shot and i heard this cracking sound i don't Ooh. think it was Sorry, sorry, listeners, putting you up your dinner here. Um, I don't think it was a rib actually cracking, but it was some kind of you know impact sound. Yeah, and um, I think they actually they actually exaggerated the brutality of it. Perhaps I mean I, that's only going by one of the filmmakers, but it, well, certainly it's, it's the bloodletting must be a bit exaggerated. The spurting, or was that? Yeah, I think yeah, that was slightly stylized. Yeah, yeah but the, it's the, it's the combination of the blood, the sweat. The, I mean, but sweat does pour off. I mean, there's a great picture from Sports Illustrated of a a George Foreman fight when he was a bit older, and because <laughs> yeah. he was a big guy, quite fat. I imagine he maybe sweated more than he had in his early years. Of but there's a there's a there's a shot, of, and the sweat is just pouring off. Mm. And I think perhaps if you've never done any boxing training, perhaps it's hard to kind of get through how difficult it is physically you know just if you just hit hit a punch bag for a minute non-stop 
you probably won't be able to feel your arms afterwards. Yeah. You well, know? I, I certainly so wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get our breath lacing them up, mate, lacing up the gloves. <laughs> but it's the blood, it's the blood, the sweat and the steam. That's the things it's, and the steam just adds to this kind of, a bit like they use in film noir, it adds to this sort of heady, very intense atmosphere. Mm. I don't, not, not so much the story, but the, the way it's filmed is very film noir, you know. It's very dark with the shadows and everything, and it, that's all very, very symbolic. Yeah, it's the, you know? the opening sort of credit sequence. Yeah. It's almost like, because this is back in the days when you could smoke in public spaces, and yeah. there's almost, like you say, this fog. You can't see the audience pretty yeah. much past the first or second row of ringside because there's this heavy fog just surrounding in beautiful black and white um so it takes your focus to the ring you're not your eyes are not drifting away to things going on in the background because you've got nothing to look at there's nothing there and like you said the steam as well and when you add all those elements together coupled with animal sounds that's fascinating that that revelation there mate as i say you've added another layer to this movie already for me well, that, that's what the the extras on the DVD did for me originally. So mm. I'm kind of just passing it on because I hadn't noticed them at all. No. I knew there were sound effects going on, but I didn't know exactly what they were. It's incredible. Um, the mm. cinematographer was a guy called Michael Chapman. Yeah. Who, who worked on Jaws? He did. He Well, yeah, he worked partly on Jaws, but um, he also was the cinematographer on Taxi Driver and The Last Waltz with Scorsese. Bit of a checkered career, Mr. Chapman. Because after this, I mean, he did loads of movies, but I've just picked out half a dozen at random here. Remember The Fugitive with uh, Harrison oh, Ford? Yeah. He did that. Ghostbusters 2. The Lost Boys, which I'm sure I've heard you mention is one of your favourite horror movies. No, I haven't not you. That, no, not you. Did, okay. see, did see it when I was a kid, though, okay. and I liked it, yeah. Um, the Wanderers. Do you remember the Wanderers? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he was cinematographer on that <laughs> and Slumber Party Massacre. So he had <laughs> don't know that one. <laughs> he, he sort of after this, I think, was his peak. You know, this was the peak of his, his cinematography career. <laughs> it's hard to talk about Raging Bull without discussing the method actor mm. uh, and the, the lengths that. Scorsese, well not Scorsese, the lengths that De Niro in particular went to for this because whatever your opinion of this movie, whether you love it, you hate it, you've got no opinion of it whatsoever it can't be denied that this is probably the classic example of method acting at its extreme and at its peak I think this is where it really sort of came to light I mean there's that famous story wasn't there of, of Marathon Man when Dustin yeah. Hoffman didn't sleep for three days, wasn't it, or something like that? Yeah, and ran, he <laughs> ran round until he was completely exhausted as well. Uh, yeah, and, and the morning, you know, they were due to do some some shooting. He explained to Laurence Olivier that you know he'd, you know, he'd, he'd not slept for three days because that's what the, the script demanded. And he went, "Have you tried acting, dear boy?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. So, you, you know, we're quite used to it nowadays when we we see these weight losses and weight gains. You know, I think. Was it Christian Bale did it for The Machinist, didn't he? That rapid weight loss thing that he did. But this was the first real example that really came to the fore, wasn't it, of an actor going above and beyond to Mm. achieve something for a movie. 
I mean, I don't know what notes you've got on this, but I know he didn't he the production ceased, didn't it, for a couple of months while he went off to Italy just to eat pasta. Is, is that the story? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He put on um, sixty pounds, which is four four stones, something. Mm, yeah, actually, uh, yeah, I feel like it seems like more than that. But um, what you actually see the effect of that very early in the film because the very first the film is bookended with him in nineteen sixty four. Yes as a sort of nightclub owner telling these terrible jokes and doing this kind of fairly dodgy cabaret, but <laughs> yeah. quite charismatic in his own way. And then they actually go from 64 to back to 41 or 43, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think Joe Pesci in this documentary said, uh, you know, he wanted to make it clear that De Niro wasn't doing this to win an Oscar, you know, the weight gain. I mean, mm. he, he was just, like Scorsese, I think that's probably one of the things that bonded them. They were both obsessive, amazingly dedicated, passionate. And, I mean, not only that, but not only the weight gain. I mean, he, you know, De Niro and Pesci have a scene towards the end of the film because Jacob DeMotta obviously beat up his brother because he thought he was having an affair with yes. his wife. Yeah. Um, and then they don't meet in the story for, I don't know how long it is, I guess it's a few years. It's after the war, isn't it? It's definitely after um, that third fight with Robinson, because Robinson came back after yeah. the war, didn't he? Because he was serving. That's right, yeah. It's after Sometime that. in the 50s, I I'd think. say the 50s, looking at the, the ageing yeah. of Joe, Joe Pesci's character, yeah. What they did was that Pesci didn't see De Niro in the time he was putting the weight on. Oh, right, okay. And so when they went to do that scene... <laughs> That was the first time he'd seen him, so there's a kind of shock on his face. Mm. Because honestly, I mean, you know, to you and the listeners, if you look at that, it's not just the weight gain. He had the he had the breathing right. I mean, they were all worried. They wanted to get those scenes shot quickly so he could start losing the weight again. <laughs> you know, because but they said he he got the breathing of a fat guy right. I mean, I suppose it's, it's probably because he was but, fat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, part of that was that. I don't know if he studied it or no, exactly. he just had this kind of, obviously, you know, he did it by gaining weight, you know. So perhaps there wasn't as much acting involved in that as we think. Uh, but the, pr <laughs> the prosthetic nose as well, probably, yeah, didn't yeah. help so much. You know, the older spud nose that he sort of develops towards the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. But perhaps what's most amazing and one of the reasons he deserved an Oscar was not only did he do that, but he had earlier got himself into a state where he actually fought professionally as a middleweight middleweight boxer. Yes. He just had three fights yeah. and won two of them, I think. Mm. The same, same as he's actually got himself a taxi license, didn't he? Before That's he, right. Yeah. While he was doing Taxi Driver. But he boxed a thousand rounds with the, I mean, yeah, let's say around a thousand rounds. Mm. I don't think they were counting them, yeah. but a thousand three-minute rounds with Lamotta himself. Yep. Uh, as you uh, as you know from your notes as well, Lamotta, who is prone to hyperbole, <laughs> said De Niro is one of the thirty greatest heavyweights in history. <laughs> Maybe he was, you know, but but De Niro to do that and to get himself in absolute tip-top shape, mm. and then subject himself to you know gaining four stone sixty pounds of yeah. of fat. It's it's I mean, not unheard of now, is it? That sort of method acting and going to those extremes. It is something we have seen since yeah. this movie. I think it was quite 
a revelation in 1980, though, wasn't it? I, I, I can't remember. I remember it being in the press at the time that people were like, look at the transformation and he's actually done this physically. It's not acting. It's not a fat suit or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and we've sort of become a little bit blinkered to it now. It's not as as shocking or as sort of like eye-opening. Yeah. Back then, it was like, wow, that's just incredible, you know. Yeah, I mean, these things can't be, can they, when you've... When you've- same with you know music beatles or whatever mm. you know you can't you can't know the impact of it when it first comes no, out and no. and i think the ultimate testimony to people like de niro and brando is that all the young guys who came up after said i wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for them mm-hmm. yeah you know, very brando, influential yeah yeah and talking to brando obviously uh, de niro recites the famous on the water run Yes. Uh, monologue could have yeah. been a contender which was written by bud Schauberg. Mm-hmm. but funnily enough another connection another thing i hadn't noticed till i saw this documentary is that you know there's not many kind of sweet scenes in this film but one of them is is the motta's first date with vicky yeah and uh someone on this documentary said that it's very similar to uh, marlon brando and eva marie saint in the water in on the waterfront all right yeah yeah because you've got a kind of boxer for a very working class boxer kind of being a little bit sweet you know obviously mm. turning on the charm a little bit and uh there's a little bit of similarity there i had never noticed that no before. no i hadn't no. we spoke about the visual side of things mm. uh we've touched briefly on the you know the sound effects and the the sound sort of quality and the lengths that they went to to create some of that mm. you can't mention this movie without talking about the soundtrack itself now Scorsese, I believe, certainly not the first director in history to use classical music as a score because look at 2001, a film you're more than familiar with. Mm. You might need to confirm this for me, but I don't know how true this is. Uh, I read that it was possibly by accident that classical music was used as the soundtrack because wasn't it, I think, the score hadn't been written for 2001, but Kubrick used the Blue Danube and things like that, just to give himself a sense of the tempo and the timing when it came to editing and just generally assembling the movie. But he liked it so much, Hmm. he decided to keep all of those famous bits of classical music in. Whether that's the case or not, Scorsese has deliberately chosen this classical score, hasn't he, as far as I'm Hmm. aware? Well, I mean, he's a a great talker, you know, he's a great interviewee and... um, He's not surprisingly, he's done a couple of director commentaries on DVDs and mm. he talks very fast, but he's, you know, full of full of passion and information as well. And he he always paints a picture of where he grew up in, in New York and these sort of tenement buildings. What he would hear through the windows was a mixture of arguing, families arguing and music. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and you could sort of smell the smell the cooking at lunchtime and dinner time <laughs> as well. It was very, very evocative. Yeah. And one of the things was classical music, and I think an uncle of his gave him this um, the soundtrack to, a, I guess it's an opera, Cavalliera, Cavalliera Rusticana, mm. and uh, by a little-known composer called Mascagni. And uh, obviously the main one is the, the intermezzo, you know, like, da, 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 you know, the main theme. become incredibly famous since the you know, release of this, mu- uh, this, this movie. Oh, yeah, of course. It's synonymous, isn't mm. it? Um, I, I um, think it's one of the most bits. iconic credit sequences in, in movie history, to be honest. That oh, whole, I think so, yeah. That whole I mean, it, 
thing, like oh. I said, sorry, mate, but the whole thing I said with that, that fog, the yeah. almost slow motion, the low angle camera, the black and white, and that particular score. Mm. And instantly you're like, hello, we've got something a little bit different here. Yeah, and I guess the opera, I guess the characteristics of opera, there's, there's often a lot of tragedy in the, mm. in the stories, but it's also, there's a kind of majesty and beauty in these sort of soaring music you hear in operas. Yeah. And, you know, critics, I guess critics would say that it's glorifying it a little bit. And perhaps, you know, I mean, Scorsese is a, is a filmmaker. He's making films not only for passion, it is his career, you know, and I'd imagine he has a fair amount of control on it. But, you know, it's a piece of art. It's not supposed to be just a straight story. And as I've said earlier, in some ways they sanitise the character, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, but, I need uh, to... Um have a little bit of a delve into the background I've got the Blu-ray that has probably got the same documentaries and oh, commentaries sure, yeah. that yeah that you've got on the DVD because there, there's a there's a wealth of stuff on there oh. and as I say you are now sort of piquing my interest you, <laughs> you've done that you're, you're achieving what I asked you to do which was to <laughs> to help me sort of understand this movie which I think I've got now mm. um, away from the technical side away from the visual aspects of the film. Let's just quickly, I'm going to spend a couple of minutes just chatting about the Oscars, because as you said, mm. Oscar-winning movie, but it only won two. Bear with me for a couple of minutes, because sure. this is something I like to do now um, with these major movies. It's just a, a lot of people don't sort of have a lot of sort of respect for the Oscars or, you know, the importance of them, but I've said this before on the show that, okay, it may not hold so much weight in certain people's eyes but for me I love the romance of the old Hollywood and what it sort of represents from back in 1927 when it first started and it's Hollywood's mm. big night you know and we've sort of lost that a little bit now um, because we don't have the characters anymore we don't have those you know those famous actors and actresses and back in 1980 well it was 81 would have been the award ceremony March 81 mm. It was broadcast, right, listen to this. I mentioned this earlier. It was broadcast March the 31st, 1981. It was originally going to take place the day before, but it was mm. postponed because it was the assassination attempt on President Reagan. Oh. So a little bit of a taxi driver sort of reference there because wasn't Hinckley obsessed with Jodie Foster? Yeah. There's, there's all that. And was it you that told me? Was it Hinckley also had a copy of Catcher in the Rye, same as Chapman? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> Yeah. So, took place a day later. Was postponed for one day. Up for best picture as well as Raging Bull. You've already mm. mentioned Ordinary People won the best picture that year. Yeah. Interestingly enough, black and white movie The Elephant Man was up for contention. Yeah. Along with The Coal Miner's Daughter and Tess, the Roman Polanski adaptation of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Mm. Best director went to Robert Redford for Ordinary People. Polanski yeah. was nominated, David Lynch was nominated for Elephant Man, Scorsese for Raging Bull, and a guy called Richard Rush for a film called The Stump Man, which starred mm. Peter O'Toole. Best actor, of course, De Niro won it. A lot of people thought it should have gone to John Hurt for The Elephant Man, because mm. that man just acted with his eyes, basically, throughout the yeah. whole movie. Um, Peter O'Toole got nominated for The Stunt Man. Jack Lemmon got nominated for a movie called Tribute, which I'm not aware of. I don't think I know what that one is. No, I haven't seen that. And also Robert Duvall 
Another Godfather connection here. He got nominated this year for a movie. Now, I don't know if you've seen this. It's called The Great Santini. No, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, watch it. Or I'll bring it to the show and I'll get you on board to have a little chat about it because I, I okay. go back to this every couple of years. Um, in any other year, Robert Duvall would have won for that. It's a great film about, um, I think he's a former Air Force pilot. It's, it's, all, it's a big family drama, soap opera mm. type thing, but he's a very sort of authoritarian um, father father to his family and you know yeah very very good film none none of the female actresses got nominated for best actress uh nomination nominations this year was sissy spacek for coal miner's daughter ellen burstin for resurrection which i don't know goldie horn got nominated for private benjamin do you remember that oh i'd take kathy moriarty over goldie horn that year (laughs) (laughs) kathy moriarty was amazing yeah uh mary tyler moore got nominated for ordinary people and gina rowlands got nominated for gloria I think Kathy Moriarty was uh, nominated for Best Supporting, actually. Yeah, Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. She was nominated, but it went to Mary Steenburgen for Melvin and Howard, which is the uh, Howard Hughes thing. It's quite a good film with, um, I think it's Jason Robards, if I remember right. And Pesci got nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but that went to Timothy Hutton for Ordinary Mm. People. So, Thelma Shoemaker won for Best Editing. So it only won two Oscars, Editing and Best Actor. Yeah. And it was nominated, let's see, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Cinematography it was nominated for, but that went to Tess. And interestingly and surprisingly, it didn't win. It, best Sound, because we focused a lot on the sound here. Oh. Do you want to take a guess what that went to? You, you, Best know. sound in 1980. Yeah. Oh, that could have been the Elephant Man. Couldn't it, it could have been, but it's one. Of, it's a film that's not been mentioned. It went to the Empire Strikes Back oh. to best sound. <laughs> so his mate George Lucas was involved there somewhere along. Yeah. The way. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's just something I like to sort of just sort of. It gives a snapshot of what was going on around the time of the movie's release. Gives you an idea of what else was out there. Do you want to add any more before we sort of summarise and sort of wind this down a wee bit, mate? Yeah, just a, just a couple of things. Mm. I mean, I, I made a note of some other films that came out in that year because yeah. that's something I like doing. Mm. And the ones that I would have seen and quite like, American Gigolo came out that year. Yeah. Um, I've never been a big Star Wars fan, but obviously that's a big event is The Empire Strikes oh, Back. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, the Long Good Friday, big favourite of yours. Oh, we recorded A Real Britannia last week. It's going out on Good Friday. <laughs> oh, and then the the well Superman two because Richard Lester we've obviously reviewed how I won the war before I love Superman the shine the Shining of course Kubrick and yep. Jack Nicholson and uh, a big favourite of mine a Woody Allen film Stardust Memories which yes. is about essentially about being famous mm. and uh, just a couple of things with the Elephant Man uh, my friend uh, Rob Ager mm-hmm. I'd like to plug him actually Rob Ager A G E R he does film analysis on YouTube, mm. and uh, it's really good. And he just recently did one about the Elephant Man, so oh, I right. watched a few scenes of that. Uh, two interesting connections. It's a 1980 film in black and white that's got lots of smoke. It has smoke, smoke and, and steam. Yeah, smoke and yeah, fog and steam. Yeah, yeah. And the other the other thing is that um, Raging Bull, when he's at his very lowest point, which is when he's in the jail. Do you remember? And he's and he's pounding the, the hell out the wall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just to just to tell the listeners, uh, those uh, walls were um, those walls were cushioned with rubber. So I it wasn't actually, hope so. It wasn't actually hitting the, uh, the hard. <laughs> I was going to say that's taking method acting to his extreme. The way he was headbutting that thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, 
when he's actually breaks down in the jail, he starts saying, uh, I'm not an animal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, isn't yeah. that amazing? <laughs> She's obviously one of the quite key lines in uh, Elephant Man. Well, there you go. Yeah. I don't think there was any collusion between them. No, I wouldn't them. have thought have... so. Um, yeah. It was on the poster. I, I remember the, the sort of tagline was, I'm not an animal. Um, I'm a human being. And it's in the trailer. I remember it being a big part of the trailer for Elephant Man. I'm yeah. going to be bringing Elephant Man to Real Britannia at some point because it's also one of my favourite movies. Oh, I, I, like I would can like I volunteer to, for yes, that. Yes, I would like to invite you to that one, mate. So <laughs> that will be happening in the next couple of months. It's yeah. the 40th anniversary again, isn't it? So yeah. you know, it's it's a interesting to go back on it. It was supposed to get a new cinema release, but obviously with mm. things going on at the moment, that's not going to happen. So I bet yeah. there'll be a nice sort of. 4k blu-ray restoration out there before long so we might tie it in when that actually happens but yeah the 80s are a fascinating year people just think it's john hughes movies and it's not mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i had one more thing mm. about the film and then i'm then i'm done yeah uh the home movies if you remember there's the bit with um where it suddenly goes color yeah. you see them them getting married and it's mm. a sort of uh, it's one of the, it's one of those filmic devices actually where you can cover a few years. Oh know. yeah, transition of time and all that lot. Yeah, yeah. transition. Yeah. That's it. Um, they were actually taken from Jake Lamotta's real home movies. Oh really? Which, yeah, <laughs> and again, very very Scorsese sort of obsessive. They're almost shot for shot the same. In fact, now the color, the idea of having the color films, obviously, because probably when Jake Lamotta did it, it was quite trendy and you had to have a bit of money to have yeah, like of course, yeah. to get color film of course but um it's supposed to symbolize that the, the happy years because when they first got married and his brother got married and everything yeah um but they had to to make them look like home movies they had to sort of desaturate the color they added flash frames and they actually physically scratched the negative <laughs> and uh what happened was that the scorsese and one of the edit i don't know if it was thelma but one of the other guys involved, they tried to edit it badly, but they couldn't because all their instincts were telling them to edit it properly <laughs> and frame it well. So they had to get, I guess, some amateurs to yeah, put it to, together to get for it wrong. us. <laughs> um, Thelma, Thelma Schoonmaker, who won, she actually said on this documentary and has said many times that that Oscar really was deserved by Scorsese because he was such... She's a very talented editor. Oh, yes, yeah. I think I think directors are often very much involved in the editing. They sit in the editing room with the editor. So. Oh yeah, they they obviously direct that side of things as well as directing what's you know going through the camera. Yeah, she's a skillful skillful lady. You know, she directed. She's worked with him for fifty years. You know, she's still yeah. working with him up till recently. I'm not sure if the, you know. Yeah, how how involved they are together now, but it's a fifty year relationship. I know that and. Um, yeah. He, he obviously won an he won one an Oscar in the end, didn't he, for The Departed? He did, yeah. Which one, I think one she of those, edited then. I think she was the editor on that. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. But it's one of those occasions where you know they they don't give you an Oscar for the films that you should have got, so they kind yeah. of give you a pat on the back a few years later. You it's know, recognition for life's work, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, The Departed's not bad, but I would I wouldn't put it anywhere near you know Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Mean Streets, or King yeah. of Comedy, or Goodfellas. Yeah. yeah that was the thing wasn't it he went all of those years it was just uh, you know he should have got it for Goodfellas he should have got it for Raging Bull should, you know and Departed came out I think I can't even remember what was about that year and as you say probably didn't deserve it but yeah well did. interesting mm. interesting with ordinary people it, it's one of those occasions 
where the film which I mean, ordinary people, I haven't actually seen it, but I know a bit about it. Mm. It's about a sort of dysfunctional upper-class family. Yes, yeah. But I think, I don't even know the ending. I don't know if it's a happy ending or not, but it's a much more wholesome film than Raging Bull. Oh, God, yeah. And (laughs) a real parallel was a few years later when uh, Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction were the two films, and Forrest Gump won everything. And I I used to like the Oscars. Um, Now since I become perhaps a bit more political, I can kind of see, you, you know, when someone wants to protest something like Michael Moore, when did Fahrenheit nine, Fahrenheit nine eleven. Yeah. You know, it's like, don't ruin our party with real life. And I think these years where something like Forrest Gump, ordinary people will win over something that for me is clearly better filmmaking, more visceral filmmaking kind of tells you a bit about the politics of it. Yeah, but, like I said, since 1927, I think, was the first one. It's been Hollywood's pat on its own back. That's the best way to describe That's it. That's what yeah. it is, isn't it? It's like, it's our party, it's our rules. Mm, it's, and the glamour. And, yeah, and it's not what public opinion... Public opinion doesn't dictate who wins an Oscar. Look at the Academy members. They're not members of the public. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, if if it went to a public vote, that would be an interesting thing, you know, to find out how how it would have gone. We know in certain cases that, you know, Goodfellas should have won over Dances with Wolves, mm. that Pulp Fiction should have won over Forrest Gump. There's yeah. every other year there is a case of that. Same with whether it be the actor or the actress, the director, whatever. You, you know how this thing works. I mean, the third in the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings sequence. Mm one that year but you know deep down that that was in recognition of the whole event yeah. the whole of that trilogy yeah it's the achievement yeah, yeah. and and you know the, the fair play to peter jackson you know he created and, and actually invented along with the wetter workshop and all that lot special mm. effects that were not you know in in great use you know the the motion capture and andy circus and all that sort of stuff mm. uh, and it was in recognition of that whole event as we say but I, I like the Oscars because of the romance of it, because of the history of it. They don't hold a great deal of sway with me as to, you know, oh, great, Parasite won this year because it was the best film. It was a bloody mm. great film. You know, I, I probably actually do agree with that decision. But for me, I just like watching it because I, I like watching Hollywood be smug and patting itself on the back, as I say. Oh <laughs> <laughs> because that's what it was all about, you know. I mean, the- it's a bit like, now. now the internet's here and there's all this sort of, wealth of alternative information of all kinds mm. really i mean now we use the word mainstream and the word alternative yeah for you know, mainstream media for example um it's kind of like the same thing it's like at the end of the year you see top 10 news stories mm. and me with my my kind of honed cynicism about tv news yeah I, I almost think of it as the top 10 stories that were given lots of traction to distract you from all the other things that were happening that makes sense yeah and and, you know so it's almost like top 10 mainstream more or less mainstream friendly (laughs) yeah or however many films are nominated for best picture and Mm. often often the right people win i mean for example with pulp fiction tarantino won for writing yeah you know, and Raging Bull now has got its recognition. And the wonderful thing about films is that, as you and I have talked about before, 
films change over time in that some hold up and some don't. Oh, yes. And some have lasting value. And Raging Bull and Pulp Fiction, I think, have their place, you know, mm. fairly cemented. And, in fact, uh, just a final uh, anti-mainstream uh, moan <laughs> uh, to do with podcasts, which, yeah. uh, you know, you and I are very much involved in, mm. as we're doing now. Yeah. Um, it really annoyed me at the end of last year. I saw in the Radio Times or something, top 10 podcasts of the year. And, of course, they're all podcasts by famous people. Yes. As if they need any more publicity. Yeah. So I'd like to say anyone listening to this who uh, is any, in any kind of official position, I'd like to start recognizing podcasts that aren't by famous people. <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> to me, that sort of takes away the whole ethos of what podcasting was all about podcasting was a medium that suddenly made it available for me to be sitting here in my mm. front room talking to you 80 miles away 40 miles away wherever you are mm. and and just having a chat about a movie and putting it out it, it was my dream of being a dj when i was a teenager you yeah, know? yeah and putting together the documentaries that i do for rainbow valley it's, it's given me that opportunity to do it and to put it out to an audience Mm. Peter Crouch, what does he want to do a bloody podcast for? You know, what's all that about, you know? Yeah. Um, and fun, funnily enough, uh, I listened to, I found a podcast called Last Podcast. No, no, sorry. It's something like, um, it was looking at famous people mm. and looking at whether they were nice people or not. Right. And there was one on John Lennon, they did people like Nina Simone. Mm -hmm. and <laughs> people that you know are kind of contentious characters. Yeah, yeah. And it was a BBC one, and I listen to quite a few BBC podcasts and enjoy them a lot. But it's something about when it's mainstream and perhaps when it's when you're earning money for it, it doesn't have that free flowing, free form thing. It's it was this one I I listened to was just trying a bit too hard. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and I feel like you know you and I as we're doing now, and my my podcast and your podcast. I think we all pride ourselves on the fact that we do our research, but we're just pretty relaxed about it, and there's no time constraints. You know, that's why. Mm, go on, sorry, no, go on. I've always said that when I when I started this eight years ago, I wasn't going to monetize it. I wasn't going to do it for any sort of monetary reasons. Mm. It was an outlet for me to talk to friends about movies that I like or movies that I needed to discover or movies that I wanted to recommend to friends and get their reaction to. Mm. Because, all right, we could sit in a pub and chat about movies, but we'd never really go into the depth that we'd, we've done today over the last 90 minutes almost. Yeah. And as I said to you, thankfully, I think you've actually, in this 90 minutes, convinced me <laughs> that Raging Bull is the better film than I thought it was. Mm. and I'm going to go back to it very, very soon. But if, if it wasn't for the podcast, Raging Bull would have been consigned to the back of my mind 15 mm. years ago, after that second watch. I would not have had the opportunity to watch it this week and talk to somebody with a great passion for it, which is what you've got, Yeah, and, and just work it out in my brain, which you've actually done. In summary, I think I like it. I certainly like it more going into, you know, coming out of this podcast than I did going into it. I certainly appreciate, I can see that it's a good-looking movie. It's filled with incredible performances. Mm. I will give it another go. I was originally going to say, oh, I'll give it another go in a couple of years. I'm 
thinking before the end of the year. I may rewatch this or at least go to those documentaries and commentaries that you were talking about. Yeah. What I found out on this viewing, we haven't really mentioned this, but I, I found I enjoyed the last act more than the first couple. The highlights of the boxing right. sequences, that's that's obvious. But that last bit, the not the downfall, but the after boxing career, I was sort of mm. more, oh, yeah, I like this. The everyday family stuff, I just, there's a lot of improvisation there. You can see that it, was, it wasn't scripted, a lot of it, which isn't a bad thing. You know, it produces some great, you know, golden pieces of cinema. But it was just that last bit that I think I found more fascinating, the method bit I think I found a bit more fascinating. Mm, um, yeah, you've actually made it click for me, certainly within the boxing scenes. And what I'm going to do, I mean, I normally review it because I, you know, I log these on letterbox.com, which is a five-star mm. rating system. Mm. I'm going to go, I'm not going to give it four, I'm going to give it a heavy three if there is such a thing. <laughs> three with a heart. <laughs> I don't, yeah, because I don't, I, t- I tend not to do half stars when I do my reviews. So, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy three, a very light four, if you want to call it that, I don't <laughs> know. Yeah. I mean, do you actually rate movies in your, in your head? Um, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Maybe it's part of my nature, but I probably do go for halves okay. if, if it's required. This one, I mean, I, I don't, ironically, I don't actually believe in perfection, but this is still a five star, 10 out of 10. That's fine. There's but nothing part, wrong with having it. It's, it's, it's in your top three, isn't it? So it's, it's got to be yeah. a five star, 10 star movie for it. But for me, the it's the personal connection. I mean, like I said at the top of the program, something like Jaws, Mm. that that thing of you know before we had a video recorder and checking the radio times every week and every two years that film would come (laughs) on and just loving it because i didn't know it too well because i only saw it every few years and then that thing has never never lost i've never lost that really and i killed i killed it all the first time i got a video recorder because i watched the film every day for six months you and Uh, i are so alike mate we are so alike (laughs) so i think I think if you have a fascination with boxing, it helps. Yes. Even though it's, it's, they always say it's not a boxing film. It's a film about this, this, and this with boxing as the backdrop. But mm-hmm. I think, I think an appreciation of boxing is not essential, but it, it, it helps. Oh, no, not at all. No. Mm. Um, it's definitely mm. a bloke's movie, though. It's not a chick flick at all, is it? <laughs> no. It's not feel good either. <laughs> the, oh, no, the worst Christmas you could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, on that note, let's leave it at that for the moment. What we're going to do, right. you are coming back onto the show, whether it be just with me or whether it be with Stephen, I think is the plan for the next one as well. Yep. Let's take a break and we'll take a look at what we're going to be watching next time. And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. So that was Raging Bull, 1980. Anthony has very kindly agreed to come back. Thank you, sir. I've enjoyed today. This has been really great. It's been an eye-opener. You've helped me appreciate a movie that I think I needed to appreciate. Yeah, I'm pleased about that. Now, next time, I don't think... 
you actually chose this. Wasn't it a joint decision between us? We sort of threw a few um, titles yeah. ac- across to each other, me, you and Stephen, when we were recording A Real Britannia. Yeah, I think I, f- I threw a few Hitchcock your way and you'd done some of them. Yeah. And then we decided on this one. On this one. So we're going to go back to 1948, a movie that is completely unlike Raging Bull, as you can get. It is Alfred Hitchcock. It's a bit experimental. It's not filmed in one shot. It was filmed in eight, ten-minute sequences or something like mm. that. Um, we'll probably talk about 1917 while we're talking about Rope because obviously it uses the same techniques but in a more modern way. Yeah. So Rope from 1948 starring the great Jimmy Stewart. Now, knowing you and your fascination for research, I bet we're going to get a lot of research <laughs> on the real-life case that influenced this. You're going to get far more than you need. <laughs> uh. That's what I like about you, though, because we, we, a bit of a bit of detail is what this podcast has been lacking for eight years, mate. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I'm never lacking in that. <laughs> no, it's, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you here, mate. Thank you for coming along. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, very welcome. Yeah, it was great. I'm just, uh, I just had a picture in my mind. Can you imagine Jimmy Stewart as Jake LaMotta? How, how do you think that would go? Oh, no. Not very well, no. no he did struggle to be flyweight, wouldn't he, let alone middleweight. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, his height might get him up to about welterweight. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's been fantastic, yeah. I mean, this is a film I'm very passionate about. I'm kind of... I cheated in a way because all the research was already in my head, if you know what I mean. That's but, uh, no, nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> like I said to you, it's not a case of doing research and trying to be technical about a film, but... As long as the conversation flows, mate, which it has done today, with me and you just chipping in enough to hopefully keep the listener entertained for the last 90 minutes. Yeah, and I hope they go back, you know, and if they have some interest in it. I mean, Mm. yeah, go back to it and notice all these little things because some of these things are just fabulous, you know, the sound effects and all the other stuff we've talked about. Certainly what I'm going to be doing, mate, now you've pointed out. Elephants, for God's sake, who knew? Yeah. Um, Could you give the listener, before we go, how, how can they get hold of The Glass Onion on John Lennon? Yep, Glass Onion on John Lennon. Um, I actually host it from SoundCloud. And if you have a SoundCloud account, um, that's probably the best place because it's got, it's got all the photos associated with each episode. Mm-hmm. It's quite, quite colourful. I like SoundCloud. Then I'm on all the other ones that I guess you're on as well. iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, etc. Yep. And then uh, there's a Facebook page, uh, which is the same name as the podcast. And then Twitter is at Onion Lennon, capital O, capital L. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've been 14 months, I've been pushing it a bit this year, you know, in terms of marketing. And it's it's growing. It's a great podcast, mate. I mean, I've been on there three times now. Was it three? Mm. Yeah. And we're going to be recording another episode for, for film fans out there. Obviously, you know, listening to this, hopefully you do look like a, the odd movie or two. We're going to be talking about Nowhere Boy from a couple yep. of years ago. So that's coming up. Yeah. You don't have to be a fan of the Beatles or John Lennon to listen to the podcast. I would highly recommend it because some of the guests that Anthony has on there are absolutely incredible. Mm. Uh, the conversation's good. The research is impeccable. As always. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here, sir. And You're very welcome. We'll see you very soon. Take care, mate. Goodbye. All right, mate. All the best. Bye. The 
management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies. Good night, sir. When you fail down, try positive thinking. That's what I told the man said. Don't wear a frown. Try positive thinking. Laugh at your troubles instead. You've got to look on the bright side. On hope so much depends. With your confidence sinking, positive thinking helps you on the way, my friend. When things look black, try positive thinking. Treat every season as spring. No glancing back, try positive thinking. Trust what tomorrow may bring. This crazy world that we live in will keep on spinning round. But with good thinking we'll get together and life won't let us down shut up you ugly bitch oh shut up we enjoy it